Please turn in uh, the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17. It says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Let's pray. Now, and Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this body of Christ, this this portion of the body of Christ that gathers here at North Belt Baptist. And I thank you for your word. I pray that you would bless this time. We pray for Pastor Hovey that you would bless him and heal him as well. And we just ask that you be glorified and honored by all that we do and say this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, it is a privilege and joy to be able to share with you this morning. If you have come in the Sunday school hour in the sanctuary, the last six months or so when I happen to be teaching, uh, you may be aware that I've been doing a survey of church history. And... um, I'm still in the first century, so moving very fast. I I expect that I'll wrap up this series sometime 2053, maybe. Um, I'll record the last sermon. You can play it at my funeral, the last message. Now, it it has been a great privilege to be able to share uh, some things on church history. And um, I'm always amazed at the hand of God and just the providence of God um, when I've taught in the past, you just see his hand working in, in ways that can only be of him. Uh, as an example, a few months ago, I was preparing my Sunday school lesson, and um, it was Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday of the week. I was getting ready to teach that next Sunday, and I get a text from Aaron Baker, who was also on the teaching rotation, and he says, Matt, is there any way you can teach this Sunday, and I'll trade with you in, in, for the next week? And I'm thinking, well, I'm already prepared to teach this week. What's going on? And so I pull up my schedule, and sure enough, I had gotten the date wrong. And um, it was Aaron's week to teach, but it was the week that I believe it was grandmother passed away. And um, so he was needing to go out of town, and the Lord used my mistake there. Uh, I was already prepared, so I text him back, sure, no problem, I got your back. You know, <laughs> and it was the Lord, I guess, who had, had both of our backs there. Um, but I'm grateful to be able to, to share. And, and so, um, actually, a few weeks ago, a similar thing happened. I was preparing to teach um, this church history lesson on a, on a letter known as Clement of Rome, a very ancient document, first century document. And I'd prepared it, and sun, Saturday night, I was getting ready to email my slides to the sound booth so we would be ready. And typed up the email, attached the slides. I'm just about to hit send, and I think... I need to double check. Am I really teaching tomorrow? And I look, and I was not. And so I was a week ahead of schedule. Um, but no big deal. I'm prepared a week ahead of time. Well, it just so happened that Sunday, um, there was a lot of discussion with the elders about this topic of church leadership. Um, Mr. Bogner and Dan and, and Pastor Hovey, we spent a lot of time, talk, time talking about this particular subject. Um, in fact, I have a copy of the, uh, our church's doctrinal statement. Has anybody read this in a while? Uh, I'll be honest, this was the first time I'd read it in the past few weeks. But on, on the subject of church government, it says, North Belt Baptist Church is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. The church is governed by the authority of the Bible, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. The church will be led by elders. The pastor is an elder, and the other elders will be added as God raises up scripturally qualified men. All decisions will be made by the elders 
and they must be in total agreement before any action is taken. Wise elders will consider all appeals made by the members, and then he lists various scriptures. So uh, this was the topic of our discussion, and, and so I was thinking a lot about this, and as I went home, this is on my mind, the subject of church government, and just and the future of North Belt and where we are as a church. And then I began to think about the lesson I'd prepared on this Clement of Rome. And I said, you know what? This letter is, this is actually the subject that I was going to be talking about. Clement of Rome is a, um, what's well, essentially a letter from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth, uh, rebuking them because they kicked their elders out. And it's a call to repentance. And so it has a lot to do with this subject of church leadership and church governance. And so I was thinking about that. And I was like, you know what? Maybe this would be a good time. This was last week to just look at what the scripture says about church leadership and what our church holds this plurality of elders to lead the church. And um, so I, I redid my lesson a little bit and I went through, I prepared to, to go through a number of the scriptures on this topic of, of a church being led by a plurality of elders. And so that was the, uh, the Sunday school lesson I gave last week. And in the providence of God, Pastor Hovey was uh, already thinking he wouldn't be here because of a, a wedding or something he was going to. And so the elders asked if I would share this message again. And so it is, it is a great blessing to be able to, to share this. And it's not a traditional sermon. Um, I'm not really a preacher, but I'll, I'll share the best I can. So I've called this a, um, it's really a, a, a biblical and historical view of the teaching on uh, eldership in the church. Uh, so it's a little bit of church history. It's a little bit of apologetics as well. Um, but hopefully it, it'll be a, um, a good bit of scriptural, um, of just looking to the scriptures on, on this subject of church leadership. That as a body of Christ here at North Belt, we can be united on this and, uh, and think about where we are as a church and where we're heading and, um, and be together. Um, so I'll, I'll begin, uh, well, the subject of church leadership is actually a, a pretty controversial subject, isn't it? I mean, you look at a number of denominations, that's the dividing line. The, there's been division over um, how churches are governed, um, you know, many Baptist churches are what called, called congregationalist, and then they'll be led by a deacon board of, with a single pastor. Um, you, you see the, like the Presbyterian church has this presbytery that's over in the very hierarchical view. Uh, the Roman Catholic church is, um, is uh, monarchical, right, with the Pope over the whole thing, right? Um, and so for many years, this idea of church leadership and how it's led there's all sorts of different opinions. Uh, but my hope is to actually look at what does the scripture say about church leadership? And I believe that Pastor Hovey got it right when he implemented this um, idea of, of an elder-led church, a plurality of elders. Um, so to begin with this letter of uh, Clement, I wanted to share a little bit. Um, Clement uh, it, it is suggested that it's written by Clement, but it's, his name is not even in the letter. Um, but it is thought that this Clement is the Clement mentioned in Philippians 4 verse 3, which says, um, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So it is traditionally thought that this letter was penned by this particular Clement. And um, there's a number of reasons why. And actually, as I read a little bit of it, you'll see it sounds very much like Paul. So this was a friend of Paul, and he had spent a lot of time with him. And you, you kind of get the feel that he had picked up some things um, from Paul. Um, but in the letter, it does not say it is from Clement. It is from the elders in one church, the church in Rome, to the elders in Corinth. And as we know, Paul had written a couple letters, First and Second Corinthians to Corinth, um, and he had some pretty harsh rebukes there. And um, the, the church of Corinth apparently turned around and was doing well, but then they had some issues again. And so that's what this letter 
was written. So a little bit of uh, the historical background, I'll just read to you. It says, who, who the Clement was to whom these writings are ascribed cannot with absolute certainty be determined. The general opinion is that he is the same as the person of that name referred to by St. Paul in Philippians 4 verse 3. The writings themselves contain no statement as to their author. The first, and by far the longer of them, there, there are actually two letters, um, simply purports to have been written in the name of the Church of Rome to the church in Corinth. But in the catalog of context, contents prefixed to the manuscript, they're both plainly attributed to one Clement. So there's only one copy of this letter that has been discovered, a very ancient uh, document, and it was with a bunch of other documents. And in them, there was like an index which says this letter was written by Clement. Um, it's suspected maybe he was, he was either the scribe or one of the elders of the church in Rome. And so he's the one that wrote it down. It goes on to say, um, and the judgment of most scholars is that in regard to the first epistle, at least the statement is correct, and that it is also to be regarded as an authentic production of, a, of the friend and fellow worker of St. Paul. This belief may be traced to an early period in the, in the history of the church. It is found in the writings of Eusebius. Eusebius was a church historian in the third century, around 260 AD. Um, he was already writing church history back, back then. So it's also in the works of Origen and others. Um, the internal evidence also tends to support this opinion. The doctrine, style, and manner of thought are all in accordance with it. So that although, as has been said, positive certainty cannot be reached on the subject, we may with great probability conclude that we have this epistle, a composition of that Clement, who was known to us from scriptures as having been an associate of the great apostle. This is one of two extra-biblical documents that date back to the first um, century. Um, it is expected to be written about uh, the year 96, and just a little on that. It says, it is clear from the writing itself it was composed soon after some persecution which the Roman church had endured. And the only question is whether we are to fix upon the persecution under Nero or Domitian. If Nero, it could be as early as 68 AD, but most scholars generally believe it was the Caesar Domitian, which puts it at the end of the first century around AD 96. The epistle was held in very great esteem by the church. The account given of it by Eusebius is as follows. Eusebius wrote, There is one acknowledged epistle of this Clement, whom he had just uh, described as being the friend of Paul. It says, Great and, and admirable, which he wrote in the name of the church of Rome to the church in Corinth, sedition having then risen in the later church. We are aware that this epistle had been publicly read in very many churches, both in old times and also in our own day. So the very ancient church was aware of this letter and it had been read and was highly esteemed by the church, not included in scripture, but it was an esteemed letter as we might um, esteem a sermon from John MacArthur or Paul Washer or Adrian Rogers. They, they looked to it as something that was very beneficial. The letter itself um, begins as follows. The church of God, which sojourns at Rome, to the church of God sojourning at Corinth, to them that called and sanctified by the will of God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from Almighty God through Jesus Christ be multiplied. Again, sounds similar to what Paul would write. And what is significant about that introduction, it's the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. It's not from the bishop in Rome or the pope in Rome. It is the church in Rome. It is the elders in Rome. And what do we have in Rome today? We have the head of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Where it is led by this monarch known as the Pope. And um, when you look at church history, the, the Roman Catholic Church and good Roman apologists, I say good because they're good at it, 
um, will often try to tell you that they have church history on their side. And that's been one of my goals in teaching church history is to demonstrate that, no, that's actually not the case. That when you look deeply into church history, you see that the Catholic church has made a lot of compromises and changed things and has not been biblical. And that's why they don't hold to the, uh, the sufficiency of scripture, but to their own traditions. In fact, there was in, uh, in the 1800s, there was an Anglican who converted to Catholicism. His name was John Henry Cardinal Newman. Have you ever heard that name before? John Henry Cardinal Newman. Um, again, he was an Anglican. He converted to, to Roman Catholicism. And um, he was famous for the saying, he said, to go deep into church history is to cease to be Protestant. And the very interesting thing about John Henry Cardinal Newman is he was involved in uh, the debate that led up to what is known as the First Vatican Council. And if you've ever studied the Roman Catholic Church, in the First Vatican Council, uh, they defined what's known as papal infallibility. It's a very heretical doc doctrine teaching that the Pope is infallible. Well, there's only one who is infallible, and that is God, right? Um, and there's a number of heresies around that. But John Henry Cardinal Newman, he was on the other side. He was debating, saying, no, we shouldn't come up with this doctrine of papal infallibility is wrong. Um, and he knew it because he had studied church history. But then at the council, and they chose to adopt that doctrine, he shut up. And no more did he say that. So he knew he was wrong. He, it was hypocritical of him. Um, and unfortunately, you've seen over the years... Um, a, a number of Protestants who get caught up in this, that they get, um, you know, amazed by the smells and bells that is the Catholic Church, and they, they'll listen to some of these apologists who are very good at making it sound like church history is on their side, and they'll get caught up into it. Um, in fact, Norman Geisler, maybe you've heard of Norman Geisler, he was an apologist, he's, he did some good work. Um, he was the head of Southern Evangelical Seminary, well, the, the patron saint of Southern Evangelical Seminary was um, a, a man known as Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was a Roman Catholic way back in history. And he, um, they, they adopted his teaching because he was a philosopher. And Norman Geisler is a philosopher, and they, they, they studied a lot of philosophy but the problem is, and they, and they said, well, just because he's Catholic, we're just studying him because of his philosophy. The problem is, you can't separate the two. You know, he was teaching out of the worldview of the Roman Catholic Church. And unfortunately, uh, back in the 90s, there were a number, like 24 of the faculty and staff and students from Southern Evangelical Seminary converted to Roman Catholicism. And um, several of them wrote a book called Evangelical Exodus, and over and over, they quote this John Henry Cardinal Newman, that to go deep into church history is to cease to be Protestant. Well, I'm telling you, they're wrong. And they were studying the wrong things. And when you look at church history, and you look at even this letter in the first century, you see that this was not the case. There was no pope. There was no single bishop running things at the Church of Rome. Um, it addresses the elders in Corinth, but it also demonstrates that the church in Rome was led by elders as well. There was not a pope in, his, in, in this point in history. Um, the interesting thing that I, I, I like about this letter in that regard is you see them writing as equals. Um, they, uh, in fact, I'll just turn to, in, in chapter 7 of this letter, It says, it says this, These things, beloved, we write unto you, not merely to admonish you of your duty, but also to remind ourselves, for we are struggling on the same arena, and the same conflict is assigned to both of us. Wherefore, let us give up vain, fruitless cares and approach to the glorious and venerable rule of our holy calling. So they're saying, look, we, we have the same problems. We're another church. We struggle as well, but then they uh, give this call to repentance to the elders. So they were not 
putting themselves over any having authority over that other church. They were calling them out as brothers to repentance. And so I want to I want to jump in now to um, to just look at some of the scriptural um, justification for this idea of of a church being led by a group of elders. And if you turn to um, Acts chapter twenty. Trying to get there myself. All these ribbons in here. I can't figure out which one's right. That was the wrong one. In Acts chapter 20, um, you see that there, there are two words which are essentially used um, synonymously in throughout the New Testament, and that is the word we translate elder, and the other is, is translated as a bishop or sometimes overseer. And when you look in, in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, Luke records Paul's trip here, and it says, And from Meletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So Paul called the elders of the church at Ephesus to come together. And then uh, Luke records Paul's message to them. He talks about what the Lord had done. Verse 21, he says, Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, he gets down to verse 28, and Paul says, um, remember, this is to the elders he's, he's speaking to. He says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over, wit, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. Well, that word overseers is the same exact Greek word that is translated in the pastoral epistles as bishop. And so you see this synonymous uh, usage of, of presbyteros, which is uh, the word we translate elder, and then episkopos, which is translated bishop or overseer. And you see the denominations that, we, that have emerged from those two words, right? The Presbyterian church and the Episcopalian church, two different denominations over those two words because of a misunderstanding and putting too much emphasis on one or the other. Things are jumping around here. That's right. Um, so, again, I want to go through several scriptures here. If you look at Acts chapter 15, uh, the elders of the church in Jerusalem united with the 12 apostles to deliberate over the doctrinal controversy. Um, like the apostolate, the elders comprised of a collective leadership body. And you see that in 15.4, which says, And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. So that was Acts chapter 15. In James, you see that uh, James instructed the sick believer to call for the elders, it's plural, of the church, singular, um, to anoint them. And James 5.14, if any sick among you, let him call the elders of, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you see this often. You see elders, plural, and church, singular. At the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he appointed a council of elders for each newly founded church. And you see this in Acts 14, which says, And when they had ordained them elders, plural, in every church, singular, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord who, on whom they believed. And uh, so again, we see this over and over, a plural elders and a singular church. Um, when passing near the city of Ephesus, as we just read in Acts 20, during a, a hurried trip to Jerusalem, Paul summoned the elders of the church, not the pastor, to meet for a final farewell exhortation. The church in Ephesus was under the pastoral care of a council of elders. And in 1 Timothy 5.17, it demonstrates beyond question that a plurality of elders led and taught the church in Ephesus, which says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the faith. Um, in Philippians 1, when Paul wrote to the Christians at Philippi, he greeted the overseers, plural, and deacons. It says Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints 
in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So again, that interchangeability of the word elder and bishops or overseers. Um, at both the beginning and the end of Paul's ministry, he appointed, or he instructed others to appoint, a plurality of elders to care for the churches he had founded and established. And you see this in Acts 14 and Titus 1. According to the Titus 1-5 passage, Paul did not consider a church to be fully developed until it had, a, had functioning qualified elders. And you see that in verse 5 of Titus 1. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou should, should have set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. When writing to the churches scattered throughout the five Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Northwestern Asia Minor, uh, Peter exhorted the elders to pastor the flock. This indicates that Peter knew that the elder structure of government was the standard practice of these churches. And so, as we look at a few more of these, I want to move into talking about uh, the purpose of elders as, as Paul and Peter describes them in the New Testament. Um, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2. The elders which are among you, I exhort you, I exhort, whom I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God, which is among you. Take the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And so when you look at scripture, you see the three essential purposes of elders, and that is feeding the flock. That's preaching the word of God, right? And teaching. And then secondly is guarding the flock, guarding against false teaching and anyone that could come in and cause harm. And then lastly, providing this oversight or managing the church. Um, this verse in 1 Peter here, when it says to feed the flock, that word feed is sometimes translated shepherd. Um, actually, the Greek has a, a pretty full meaning. It can be shepherd or to tend, rule or govern, even nourish and cherish and, um, and serve. And I believe that's, that, is, that is the role of the elders. I believe that is the function our elders serve us in, to shepherd and to serve and to nourish and to cherish and to govern. So it's a beautiful responsibility given to the elders. In Acts 20, a similar verse, 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, that which he that purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you not sparing the flock. And so again, here you see, not only they are to feed the flock, but they are to protect the flock from grievous wolves that could come in and cause great harm. In Alexander Strach's book on, it's called Biblical Eldership, An Urgent Call to Restore Biblical Church Leadership, he says, shepherd elders must be watchful and prayerful. They must be aware of changing issues, both in society and the church. They must continuously educate themselves, especially in the Holy Scripture, diligently guard their own spiritual walk with the Lord, and always pray for the flock and its individual members. Um, he goes on to say, Many churches and denominations that once stood for sound orthodox doctrine and life now reject every major tenet of the church, of the Christian faith, and condone the most deplorable moral practices conceivable. And isn't that the truth? You see so many churches all over the world that have abandoned the true gospel, that have abandoned sound teaching on morality and have led their churches astray. Um, in fact, I, as a personal example, one summer before I graduated college, I worked at this camp out in West Texas. It was a Christian camp and uh, I herded young boys around for a, a week at a time and it was, it was a great experience, able to share the gospel with many young kids. And um, 
It was a great time. Well, the, the leadership of the camp, though it wasn't a church, we did operate as a church every Sunday. We had a church service and all that worked there gathered together. But about halfway through the summer I was working there, they brought in a man who was a college professor. He was an English professor. And they allowed him to begin teaching a Bible study. And so I went to the first one, and I just about got up and walked out. This guy was teaching complete heresy. He was denying the inerrancy of Scripture. He was denying essential doctrine. And they, but they allowed this man to come in, and he stayed there, and eventually it completely destroyed the camp. And the, the leadership ended up getting let go, and I'm not sure where it is now, but it completely caused division, and I'm sure led many young people astray and uh, caused many problems. So it's very sad. But you've seen that in many churches. When the church leadership does not guard and teach truth from Scripture, and they allow what is essentially liberalism, liberal Christianity to come in, it will destroy the church, and it will destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ, and it will cause much harm to the body of Christ. J. Gresham Machen was a great theologian in the early 1920s. He wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And his conclusion of this book was that liberal Christianity is a completely different religion. It is not genuine Christianity. Why? Because they deny, they deny the virgin birth. They deny that Jesus, they deny the deity of Christ. They deny that he was truly died on the cross and rose again. And when you deny those basic uh, tenets of Scripture, you are no longer a Christian religion. You're something else. You're a social club or something. So it is the responsibility of church leadership to make sure that doesn't happen and teach truly um, the Word of God. And I'll even, to be a bit candid, when I, I first began to teach and the elders asked me about teaching, I have a little bit of a different doctrinal perspective on something. And so Pastor Hovey says, you can teach on anything but that. Well, that's, that's okay, you know, because that's Pastor Hovey. I respect that. That's him doing his job as over this, being over this flock and guarding his interpretation of Scripture. And me being under him, under his authority, it is my responsibility to not cause division and respect that. And I'm sure we all have our little differences on things, right? And so it is important that we, we live and we worship in unity and not focus on differences, but focus on the, uh, the main things, right? And so the, the last um, element here of uh, the role of elder is to manage. Um, you see this in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, uh, in, this is in the qualifications for elders. It says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? So there's a, there's a correlation between how an elder manages his own household and how he would manage the church of God. If his household is unruly, you know, how is he going to look after and manage the church of God? Um, and then in 1 Timothy 5, 17, which I read at the beginning, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Well, that word rule there, it could also be, in other places, it's translated as maintain, or you get the idea of managing. So, again, there is an aspect of church leadership to manage the church well. So to, to teach sound doctrine, to protect from false doctrine, and to manage the church of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, he says, I beseech... And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. John MacArthur, his note on this verse, he says, this means that the people are to know their pastors well enough to have an intimate appreciation for them and to respect them because of their value. The work of pastors is summarized in a threefold that includes, one, laboring, that is working to the point of exhaustion, overseeing, literally, it means standing before the flock to lead them in the way of righteousness, 
And then three, instructing in the truths of God's word. That's John MacArthur. Um, so th those are the general qualifications and the general reasoning why we hold to this plurality of elders in our church. And it is our desire to be biblical. And going back to this, this Clement of Rome, um, they held this desire also to be biblical. In chapter 47, if I could, he says, take up the epistle of the, of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write to you at that time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly under the inspiration of the spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself, Cephas and Apollos. So here again, sounds very much like, like Peter when he talks about being in the word of God being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here, uh, Clement is saying, look, the Apostle Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in, uh, in all his directions about elders. Um, Strach, he makes the, uh, the comment in his book. He says, in the end, every local church is responsible to teach its people the meaning of the terms it uses to describe its spiritual leaders, whether it be elders, overseers, ministers, preachers, or pastors. Biblical sensitive church leaders will instruct that the terminology they use represents the, as accurately as possible the original biblical terms and concepts of the New Testament eldership. So sometimes there's a lot of these terms that get thrown around, and he does acknowledge in his book that sometimes different words that are used for either pastor or things can take on a negative connotation. But his main emphasis is be biblical in how you structure things and try to use biblical language as you, as you talk about it. But understanding that sometimes in various churches that these words can take on a, a different connotation and you want to, but the important thing is to um, be biblical in it. Um, so I want to dive into now a little bit more of this uh, letter from uh, the church at Rome to the church in Corinth. And it begins like this. It says, Owing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events which have happened to ourselves, we feel that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us, and especially to that shameful and detestable sedition, utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pitch of frenzy, that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury, for who ever dwelt even for a short time among you and did not find your faith to be as fruitful of virtue as it was firmly established, who did not admire the sobriety and moderation of your godliness in Christ, who did not proclaim the magnificence of your habitual hospitality, and who did not rejoice over your perfect and well-grounded knowledge. So again, after Paul wrote his letters, First and Second Corinthians, there was a turning in the church and they, they started getting things right and they left some of the sin that they had been involved in. And so uh, this letter begins by saying, look, you were doing so great. You had many wonderful qualities. You were obeying the word of God, but bad things happened. Sedition came in. He goes on to say, moreover, you were all distinguished by humility and were in no respect puffed up with pride but yielded obedience rather than exhorted it, and were more willing to give than to receive, content with the provision which God had made you, and carefully attending to his words. You were inwardly filled with his doctrine, and his sufferings were before your eyes. Thus a profound and abundant peace was given to you all, and ye had an insatiable desire for doing good, while a, a, while a, a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit was upon you all full of holy designs, ye did with true earnestness of mind and of godly confidence stretch forth your hands to God Almighty. So he just goes on to say, man, look how great you were doing. But you know, in, in Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? You know, you, you let these false teachers come in and distract you. 
In chapter 3, he gives a little bit more of an example of what happened. He says, Every kind of honor and happiness was bestowed upon you, and then was fulfilled that which is written. My beloved did eat and drink and was enlarged and became fat and kicked. Hence flowed emulation of, and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and disorder, war and captivity. So the, worthiness, the worthless rose up against the honored, those of no reputation against such as were renowned, the foolish against the wise, the young against those advanced in years. For this reason, righteousness and peace are now far departed from you, inasmuch as everyone abandons the fear of God and has become blind in his faith, neither walks in the ordinances of his appointment, nor acts apart becoming a Christian, but walks after his own wicked lusts. Anyway, he goes on to say, look, this is what happened. You all allowed people to come in and teach false things, and before you know it, well, what? they got lazy, right? They did not guard the flock. And they, allowed, they were lazy and allowed false teaching to come in, and it destroyed the church. Some other interesting things about this, uh, this note. Have you ever heard um, that tradition says the Apostle Paul went all the way to Spain, and he was imprisoned seven times? Well, we don't see that in Scripture, right? Uh, anybody heard that before? It's something I've heard a few times. But that's um, actually captured in this letter. He says... Um, he says, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee and stoned. After preaching both in the east and west, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the west, the extreme limit, thinking that was probably Spain, and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Thus he was removed from the world and went into the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. Um, one thing that is belittled in many churches today is the concept of repentance. The teaching on repentance is often scoffed at in many churches today. And I mentioned this section earlier um, as the, uh, the elders in the church in Rome were not puffed up. They were saying, look, we are equals. But this section, let's read it again. It says, these, these things, beloved, we write to you, not merely to admonish you of your duty, but also to remind you of ourselves. For we are struggling on the same area, and the same conflict is assigned to both of us. Wherefore, let us give up vain and fruitless cares and approach to the glorious and venerable rule of our holy calling. Let us attend to what is good, pleasing, and acceptable in the sight of him who formed us, let us look steadfastly to the blood of Christ and see how precious that blood is to God, which having been shed for our salvation has set the grace of repentance before the whole world. Let us turn to every age that has passed and learn that from generation to generation, the Lord has granted a place of repentance to all such as would be converted unto him. Um, and again, I see this often that repentance is played down. Look, you just... Jesus loves you. Just, just love Jesus. You know, there doesn't need to be a change in your life. Just, just go to Jesus. But you know what? What was the first word recorded in Jesus' first sermon in Matthew? It's repent. <laughs> the first word recorded in his first sermon is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when you get to the end of Luke, of course, we have the, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. We're going to all the world and make disciples. Um, it's worded a little bit differently in the book of Luke. At the end of Luke, he says, go into the world and preach repentance. It's very important that we not neglect that teaching on repentance, that we should be turning from our sin and turning toward faith in Christ. That is our duty as a Christian and is the work of the Holy Spirit as well. Another uh, a very interesting thing I found as I studied this letter is the, um, in chapter 16, he says, for Christ is of those who are humble-minded and not of those who exalted themselves over his flock. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the scepter of the majesty of God, did not come in pomp of pride or arrogance, although he might have done so, but in a lowly condition as the Holy Spirit 
had declared regarding him. And I read that because you see Jesus Christ, the Son, you see the majesty of God, the Father, and you see the Holy Spirit. And so um, another false uh, proclamation of many um, about the church is that the idea of the Holy Trinity was not sound, was not, they say the early church didn't actually believe that. But you see right here, this reference to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, the letter goes on to uh, exhort them to peace, that we live in peace with one another. It says, thus the humility and godly submission of so great and illustrious men have rendered not only us, but also of all generations before us better, even as many have received his oracles in fear and truth. Wherefore, having so many great and glorious examples set before us, let us turn again to the practice of that of peace, which from the beginning was the mark set before us. And unfortunately, you see so many, when churches split and there's conflict, they're, they're acting out on selfish desires, right? They're not seeking peace with one another. And over and over in Scripture, we see the uh, exhortation to live in peace. Um, finally, as you get near the end of this letter, there is just some great biblical exhortation. As they close, he says, Let our whole body then be preserved in Christ Jesus, and let everyone be subject to his neighbor according to the special gift bestowed upon him. Let the strong not despise the weak. Let the weak show respect unto the strong. Let the rich man provide for the wants of the poor. Let the poor man bless God because he hath given him one by whom his need may be supplied. Let the wise man display his wisdom and not by mere words, but through good deeds. Let the humble not bear testimony of him, but leave witness to be born to him by another. Let him that is pure in the flesh not grow proud of it and boast knowing that it was another who bestowed on him the gift of conscience. Let us consider then, brethren, of what matter we were made, who and what manner of, thing, of beings we, we came into the world. As it were out of the, the sepulcher and from utter darkness, he who made us and fashioned us, having prepared his bountiful gifts for us before we were born, introduced us into the world. Since therefore we received all things from him, we ought for everything to give him thanks, to whom be glory forever and ever. And so you, you see in that exhortation, it's like people, we're all sorts of people, right? There's rich, there's poor, there's geniuses, there's me. You know, there's all these different uh, gifts. God has bestowed all these different gifts to everyone. And he says, we should be humble in, in mind and accept what the Lord has given us and be grateful for it and give thanks to him because the reality is none of us deserve even a single gift from God. And you may have heard me say before, if we lost everything, if we were completely destitute under a bridge somewhere, yet we still had that hope of eternity in Jesus Christ, we still have far more than we deserve, do we not? And so we can't get puffed up. We must walk in humility and blessing toward one another. In the end, he says... May God, who seeth all things, and who is the ruler of all spirits, and the Lord of all flesh, who chose our Lord Jesus Christ and us through him to be a particular people, grant to every soul that calling upon his glorious and holy name, faith, fear, peace, patience, long-suffering, self-control, purity, and sobriety, to the well-pleasing of his name, through our high priest and protector, Jesus Christ, by whom be to him glory and majesty and power and honor both now and forevermore. Again, similar to something Paul would write. But again, exhorting as you repent, give glory to God. As you turn to him, give him glory. And then finally, the last bit they say, send back speedily to us in peace and with joy. These are messengers to you. And he lists a few names and says that they may the sooner announce to us the peace and harmony we so earnestly desire and long for you far among you, that, and that we 
may be more quickly rejoice over the good order reestablished among you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with all everywhere that are called of God through him by whom be to him glory, honor, power, majesty, and eternal dominion from everlasting to everlasting. So again, they're saying, hey, once things have straightened out, once you have restored good order again, let us know. And isn't that what a good shepherd does? He seeks to restore order. He seeks to, um, to squash false teaching. But then he, he comes back and says, hey, how's it going, right? And he looks to, uh, to make sure that they continually are walking according to Scripture. The last bit I wanted to, to share would be remiss if I didn't. Unfortunately, I was mentioning some of the issues with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, um, the Roman Catholic Church gets salvation by grace through faith wrong. And what we see in this letter, I'll just read it to you. It says, Inasmuch as God has promised, thy seed shall be as the stars of heaven, all these therefore were highly honored and made great, not for their own sake, or for their own works, or for the righteousness which they wrought, but through the operation of his will. And we too, being called by his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom, our understanding, our godliness, our works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by faith through which, from the beginning, Almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is what it means to be saved, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I just wanted to give opportunity, as we've considered these, these scriptures on what it means to be biblically run, we also want to be biblically minded, but you can't be biblically minded if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ. You haven't turned from sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, who was Almighty God in the flesh, and died taking the penalty for our sin. Amen. There is nothing greater in life and to know you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know pretty much everybody in here, and I assume everyone in here has done that. But if you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you have worked throughout history, building your church, protecting your church, giving wisdom to elders and bringing about unity, Lord, when it is needed. And I pray, God, that we as the body of Christ here at North Belt would walk in unity, would love one another, would be a blessing to one another. And we wait patiently, Lord, to see your hand as how you will lead us. God, please bless our elders, give them wisdom, draw them close to you, and may they continue to serve the body of Christ according to your word as a shepherd as a shepherd feeding the flock and nourishing and cherishing, as a shepherd guarding the flock and protecting, and as managers, Lord, making sure things are run according to your leading, Lord. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask your blessing on the rest of this day that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.